We're going to begin this afternoon in Genesis chapter 41. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 41. Let's begin with verse 53. <clears throat> Genesis 41, beginning with verse 53. And the seven years of Plenteous that was in the land of Egypt were ended. And the seven years of dearth began to come, according as Joseph had said, and the dearth was in all lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. And when all the land of Egypt was famished, and people cried to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said unto all the Egyptians, Go unto Joseph, what he saith to you do. And the famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold unto the Egyptians, and the, and the famine waxed. Uh, sore in the land of Egypt. And all the countries came into Egypt to Joseph for to buy corn because that the famine was sore, so sore in all the lands. Let's continue into chapter 42. Now when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said unto his sons, Why do you look one upon another? And he said, Behold, I've heard that there's corn in Egypt. Get you down thither and buy for us from thence that we may live and not die. And Joseph's ten brethren went down to buy corn in Egypt. But Benjamin, Joseph's brother, Jacob, uh, but Benjamin, Joseph's brother, Jacob sent not with his brethren, for he said, Lest peradventure mischief befall him. And the sons of Israel came down to buy corn among those that came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. And Joseph was the governor over the land, and he uh, it was that sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves uh, before him with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brethren, and he knew them, but made himself strange unto them, and spoke roughly unto them. And he said unto them, Whence come ye? And they said, From the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew not him. When Joseph was seventeen years old, his brothers sold him into slavery. He spent 13 years as a slave before Pharaoh. Elevated uh, to second in command over the land of Egypt. But it took him 13 years. So, at the age of 30, just a young man, he became the most powerful man in the land of Egypt only Pharaoh was more powerful than he was. Now we recall the reason for his elevation. He interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh. Pharaoh saw the or had the dream of the corn, the ears of corn. He saw the dreams of the, the fat cows and the lean cows. And of course those would be seven years of plenty only to be followed by seven years of dearth. And that was, of course, the great famine of which we read. And by the time we get to the point in time, our text describes Joseph would have been at least 37 years old. And so for seven years, he ruled in Egypt over that time of plenty. And because of the great blessings that God gave him, and of course his natural abilities, he took that opportunity to put Egypt in a position to be able to take care of, of themselves, not only the land of Egypt, he was able to take care of all of the land that surrounded Egypt. And all of those people came in 
and he was able to take care of them. And so that means it had been at least 21 years since Joseph and his brethren had stood face to face. 21 years since they had mistreated the young man, thrown him into a pit, uh, an empty well, and then sold him off into slavery. Sent him down to Egypt as a slave. Their own brother, just a young man of 17 years old. Of course, there had been many great trials that he had endured and that he had conquered. And the last time they had met, Joseph was the one at a disadvantage. But now the tables had turned. Joseph wasn't at a disadvantage. Joseph was the one who had the advantage. And he wasn't in need of rescue. It was his brothers. All ten of them had come down. Jacob had sent them. The famine was, in, uh, was ravaging the land of Canaan. He looks at the boys. He says, what are you doing? Sit around looking at each other. We're starving to death. Go down to Egypt. I heard there's bread down there. Go get some corn. Go get some wheat. Bring it back so we don't die. They were in need of rescue. And of course, when he saw his brethren, after more than two decades had passed, they didn't recognize him. Now, he had changed. He had upon him the look of the Egyptians. They looked different. They carried themselves differently. They spoke differently. And they didn't recognize him, but he knew them for sure. And God used that event to save the lineage through which the Messiah would come. He was able also to awake to awaken a conscience that had gone to sleep in those men. They had been able to push down deep within themselves something that they didn't even want to talk about anymore, that they had tried to forget all those many 20 plus years. And they had been able to, for the most part, do that. Now the title of the sermon this afternoon is Stirring a Sleeping Conscience. And that's something we need to consider. Now the purpose this afternoon is for us to better understand what the conscience is, what it does, and how it can be protected. Because the conscience is very important and it's very fragile. First, we need to understand what it is. The dictionary defines it as the sense or consciousness of the moral goodness or blameworthiness of one's own conduct, intentions, or character together with a feeling of obligation to do right or to do good. And that is in my opinion, a pretty good definition of what the conscience is. The word is found 31 times in the New Testament. 31 times it's found. And the Greek word from which it comes means the soul as distinguishing between what is morally good and bad. The soul, meaning the person, distinguishing between what is morally good and what is bad prompting to do the former and shun the latter, commending one, condemning the other. Now, in his book, The Vanishing Conscience, J.F. MacArthur, Jr. wrote this. He said, The conscience entreats us to do what we believe is right and restrains us from doing what we believe is wrong. Now, that's true. But what we believe is right might not necessarily be right. So we have to train the conscience. The conscience is not to be equated with the voice of God. 
It is a human faculty that judges our actions and thoughts by the light of the highest standard we perceive. When we violate our conscience, it condemns us, triggering feelings of shame, anguish, regret, consternation, anxiety, disgrace, and even fear. When we follow our conscience, it commends us, bringing joy, serenity, self-respect, well-being, and gladness. Now that's a wise statement, and that's a true one. But that doesn't mean that the conscience is always correct. So we have to train the conscience, right? That means the conscience cannot necessarily be our guide. Now God has given us a conscience to be a guide if trained properly. Okay? And no matter how it seems to others, everybody has a conscience. So that means that it could or could not be a properly trained conscience. Everybody's got one. Now, some consciences, though, may not even be awakened. And that's something to consider also. So someone might rightly ask this. How could a radical Muslim, for instance, destroy innocent life in the name of his or her God? How could a radicalized anyone go into a congregation of people, a church of any kind, and destroy and kill anyone? Well, they have an improperly trained conscience. Now, that has happened, hasn't it? We've read about that. Not in the too distant past. People going into a congregation of people. In fact, not too awfully long ago, someone went into a congregation around Nashville... And in Texas, a sister congregation and kill people. How would a person do that? They believed they were doing something that was right. Well, their conscience was not properly trained. The answer lies in the fact that the conscience is not infallible. So we have to understand that the conscience can make mistakes. Nor is it the source of revelation. And we have to understand that. A person's conscience, rightly stated earlier, is not the voice of God. And so we have to look at that. It can't tell us necessarily what's right or wrong. Now we perceive it to tell us what's right or wrong, but it may not be trained properly. It is, its purpose is not to teach moral or ethical ideas. Instead, it is to hold us accountable to the standards that we have. So we have to train ourselves and have the proper standards. And we have to commit ourselves to those standards. So, the truth is every conscience must be given instruction. And only then will it be worthy of being a guide to any one person. Now, again, people are born with a sense of right or wrong. A sense of all. We talked about that this morning. So, here's the thing. If, if we invited a group of atheists into the building and we began to ask them some questions, they would agree it's not right to steal or murder. But where did that come from? Well, that came from God. He instilled that in us. Okay, God gave each person that sense of ought, that, that precept, and it originated from Him. It came from our Father. 
but there has to be more to it. We have to continue to train and to grow and to learn what he specifically wants us to do. And so uh, uh, we also learn those things through societal practices. But we, we cannot learn what God expects out of us through societal practices. We can learn general things, right? So as we look at the text before us, I want us to, to look at some things, and we can learn some things about the conscience and just how important it is to train the conscience and how fragile the conscience can be. And we have to take care of it. Joseph's brothers had long since silenced their consciences. But through their reintroduction to their brother, it was awakened. And there are ways that that has to happen. And so I want us to begin this afternoon with how the conscience is seared first. We have to understand how that can happen. One way that happens is through hatred. It happens through hatred. And we see that in the life of Joseph and his ten brethren. Hatred will sear one's conscience. And we recall early on in Joseph's life how that happened. They hated their brother. I mean, after all, they sold him into slavery, right? They caught him out in the, in the fields. They killed an animal. They dipped his coat into blood. They went and showed it to his father. And they said, look what we found. Now, they didn't go up to him and say, look, Joseph was killed. They said, look what we found, Genesis chapter 37, 31 through 33. But it was still a lie, and he believed the lie. And they were not bothered necessarily. Well, they had to have been bothered by it. The sorrow that that Jacob uh, presented to them. He went into a period of mourning that lasted 20 years. Can you imagine that? His youngest son went into a period of mourning that lasted for 20 years. Of course, later on he had Benjamin. And they saw that and they watched that. Actually lasted 20, uh, 21 years, right? More than 20 years. And that worked upon them. And they allowed their conscience, though, to be seared because they hated Joseph so badly. What in the world could Joseph have done that would have caused them to hate him that badly? Well, he was a tattletale. Okay, he was a tattletale. He was favored by his father. Was that Joseph's fault? No, that was Jacob's fault. Jacob grew up in a home where that was the case, though, wasn't it? His mother loved him best, and his father loved Esau best. He should have known better. But that wasn't Joseph's fault. So he had jo- jo- uh, Joseph had some faults. But as they sold him into slavery, they watched the captors take him off to Egypt. That had to have been a picture that stayed in their mind for 20-something years. But they pushed it down, and they pushed it down, and they allowed that to sear their conscience. When they lied to their father, they still saw that grief and distress in his face. But as time passed, the feelings of remorse and guilt, they were silenced. The hatred was still there. That helped to silence that conscience. And after a while... They thought less and less about it. And over a period of time, guess what happens? You know, there's no doubt they probably began to believe their own lies. Joseph just simply was killed in the wilderness. What happened to Joseph? Well, he died and animal got him. And you tell that over and over again. The neighbors down the, down the road, well, whatever happened to Joseph? I don't know. He was just, he just, we found his coat and it was bloody and, a wild animal got him, and they told that over and over, and it seared their conscience. And eventually, you know, they told the story so much they probably began to believe it. 
they seared their own conscience. Each brother came to a place in their lives where their conscience stopped speaking to them. And they just tamped it down. You know, it's very similar, and I read this uh, uh, in an illustration book one time. Someone had put up a, uh, one of the invisible fences around their homes for a dog, and they put the, uh, put the collar on the dog, and eventually the dog found out that if he got far enough away from the fence, it quit hurting of course, you get up so close to the fence, it starts beeping, and then it shocks the dog, but you get so far away from it, it will stop hurting. So the dog would start running toward the fence, and way before it started beeping, the dog would start howling and crying. And so he'd start howling and crying, and then he would get past it, and he would howl and cry and cry and cry, and then it would quit hurting. Well, the further you get away from something, finally, you just forget about it. And that's what Joseph's brothers had done. They learned if you get far far away enough, far away from it, it'll finally quit hurting. And they had seared themselves. So what does that? What what else does that tell us? It can also be seared when one does not heed his trained conscience. Hatred will do it, but if you don't listen and you don't heed it it will also uh, become seared. In 1984, an avionic airlines jet flying over Spain crashed into a mountain. Instantly, it killed everyone on board. No one, no one lived at all. But when the investigators found the black box, uh, they were amazed as they listened to the cockpit recording in the minutes that led right up uh, to the crash. They downloaded the information. The plane's collision system began to speak to the pilot warning him of an object that was in the flight path. Of course, it was a mountain. The computerized voice of a female speaking in English was heard to say, pull up, pull up, pull up, over and over again. After a few moments, the pilot was heard to say, now this was a a Spanish airline. After a few moments, the pilot was heard saying, shut up, gringo, and he turned off the system. Wouldn't heed the warning. Didn't believe the warning. Just turned off the system. A few moments later, at 14,000 feet, you know, mountains can reach 14,000 feet. You know, anybody ever been out west knows that. And higher, they reach higher than that, but for, they're regularly 14,000 feet in the western United States. And they cra- and the, and the, cra- uh, the plane crashed, and... Uh, Everyone was killed instantly. And that's kind of an illustration of how a person's conscience can be seared when they do not heed what they know is right. Your conscience speaks to you when it's trained properly. And when we continually ignore the conscience and we continually put it aside, we can sear it. Because what happens with a trained conscience is it causes one to understand what they're doing is wrong. That's its purpose. What you're doing is wrong. In essence, the conscience is saying, pull up, pull up, stop what you're doing. You know this isn't correct. Don't do it. Eventually it stopped being heard. And it definitely is not being heated. And it becomes seared. Now the word seared me, sear means to cauterize. 
You know, that's used in medical procedures. It's used in all sorts of things. And when a wound is cauterized, heat is used to seal off the blood vessels. And uh, originally it meant to brand. And so when that happens, that causes a scar. And you know what happens in a scar? It kills and deadens the nerve endings. There's no more feeling there. There's no, you, can't feel, you can't feel pain and you can't feel anything, right? And now that's a problem. We have feeling to tell us and to warn us, hey, don't touch the hot stove. Because if you can't feel it and you touch it anyway, it causes a, a, a terrible uh, injury, right? That's the whole idea. You touch something, don't touch it again, right? We uh, had some of our family over last night and the, and the little boy was... Uh, we had some honeybees come up on the uh, on the porch around uh, the light at night. He kept bothering them. And I thought to myself, that's going to stop here in a minute. And it did. You know, because one got it. There's a reason for that. That tells you don't do that again, right? Now, if you don't, if you don't have feeling and you just keep on and keep on getting things that hurt, eventually you get infection. And it, and it gets worse, and it gets worse, and it gets worse, and you might have to have an arm amputated. You get burned so bad, or this happens, or that happens. And now you, you run into all kinds of health problems, right? And that's what seared means. You lose feeling in that place. And if you lose feeling in your conscience, now it's just dead. We don't want that to happen. We do not want a seared conscience. That's what happened to those in Rome. God gave them over to their lustful desires. Paul said this, Romans 1.28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. He warned Timothy. He said, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, 1 Timothy 4, beginning verse 1. Having their conscience seared with a hot iron. See, that's what the seared means. Once a person allows his conscience to be seared, it becomes extremely difficult to reverse the damage. It can be reversed, but it becomes difficult for that to happen. However, a seared conscience can be stirred back to life. That's our second point. It can be stirred back to life. And Joseph's brothers, they are a good example of that. It can be stirred back to life. Now, God can use problems in this life to stir a conscience back to life. And, and we see that here. Those men who had so mistreated their brother now found them in a position to have their conscience stirred back to life. But they had to go through a little... Uh, tough time to get that to happen. They had to be faced with some problems. They had to reflect back on 20 years of having their conscience pushed down and put to sleep. Now it was important for Joseph to remain faithful over this period of time. It was important for that because he needed for his brothers to repent and turn back to God in faithfulness. Now what was that? Well the lineage of the Savior didn't come through Joseph. Came through Judah. Right? Came through Judah. Isaac needed to get, or uh, uh, Jacob needed to get to Egypt. 
the boys needed to get to Egypt. All of them did. The whole, the, the, all of the patriarchs needed to get down there so Israel could become a nation and a people. So those tribes could be formed. So they could come out of Egypt a nation. Not just a family. A nation. And so they had to go down there and become a faithful people. But Joseph had to be faithful to get them down there. Because the Messiah came through Judah. Right? The problem used to resurrect the dead conscience of Israel's children was a worldwide famine. It was a worldwide famine, Genesis 41. Without the famine, there would be, have been no reason to go to Egypt, right? Wouldn't have been a reason to go down there. But once they got to where, the, where salvation was, they returned with grain. They were told to, don't go back unless you bring your other brother. See, Joseph had to get them back down there again. He wanted to see that younger brother. So to prove their story, Joseph demanded, bring your younger brother and present him. Now, he knew who they were, but he wanted to see that full brother of his. He hadn't seen him. He knew there was one, and he wanted to see him. And so, Joseph initiated this plan to cause those men to remember the things of their past. They had to reflect upon that. They had to go through and think about all the terrible things they had done. That was going to bring that conscience back to life. And when he demanded the presence of, ben, of Benjamin, they began to recall what they did to Joseph. And this is why. How he begged them with anguish. Genesis 42:21. How Reuben said, don't bring harm to the boy. Right? Don't sin against the child. Uh, Genesis 42:22. All of that came rushing to the front again. And their conscience began to be stirred back to life. All of that came flooding in. And if we have a, a seared conscience, what has to happen is we have to recall the sins. Why is that? Because we have to repent of those sins. We have to recall them. We have to remember them. We have to realize how we were wrong. As Paul spoke to that when he said this, 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Now the famine drove those men to Egypt. And without it, they would have never thought of Joseph again. And they would have died with a seared conscience. God will also use people to stir up a dead conscience. We use problems, we also use people. Now, it is the responsibility of brethren to keep the conscience of each other alive. That's one thing that we do. Though Joseph was wrong, he was still tasked with saving those who harmed him. Notice what Paul warned the Corinthians to do uh, regarding their brother who was caught in adultery, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He warned them to do what was right regarding that man. It wasn't fun. It wasn't enjoyable. But he wanted them to get that brother back. And when we go over to 2 Corinthians, uh, I think it's chapter 3, that worked. They, or chapter 2, they had gotten him back, right? They had gotten him back. And he said, now rejoice with him. He has returned. 
And so that's an extremely difficult task, right? We get over to Galatians 6, 1 and 2. He, he talks to the Galatians about bearing the burdens of the weak. We bear the burdens we can bear when we are able to help each other. We have to bear our own burdens sometimes, and sometimes we can help bear the burdens of one another. So a conscience can be seared, it can be stirred, but most importantly, and this is our final point, it can be saved. So as the account continued, they were certain their trouble was the result of the evil that they had laid on Joseph. They knew, they came to that realization, but they decided to turn away from that. And we see it working. We see that conscience coming back to life and they wanted to turn away from that. They did that by confessing to each other. Isn't that wonderful? When we look at that, we see the change in those men's lives. They said, what we did was wrong. We should have never done that. What we did to our brother was wrong. They didn't know he was still alive. But they got together and they said, look, this bad thing's happening to us right now is because of what we did 21 years ago. We should have never done that. And they, they confessed that, and they wanted to turn away from sin, and they wanted to turn toward heaven. Hey, nothing has changed. God still requires that. We have to recognize where we've done wrong in the past, right? And sometimes we can have a seared conscience and not even know it, and not even recognize it. And we want to be careful with that. We, we may have a, have a seared conscience toward one area of life, not realizing, and, and, and that keeps us from being pleasing to God. A seared conscience is dangerous, and it'll keep us from going to heaven, right? And so we want to make sure that we don't have that. We have to, we have to confess those things and turn toward God, 1 John 1, 9. You know, we, that may be of a private nature, but we still have to, have to do that. And when we do that, what we're looking for is forgiveness and reconciliation. That's what we want. That's what God wants, right? But before we can do that with God, we may have to do that with His children, right? Matthew 5, 21 through 24. And so we have to turn away from sin. We have to turn toward God and we have to train our conscience. We have to train our conscience. That helps to save us. David said this, Psalm 119, 11, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. That's how we train our conscience. Did David commit some terrible sins? You know, we might even say that David committed the worst sins. The worst sins. You know, we think about uh, Saul of Tarsus, later Paul the Apostle, and we think, boy, he was bad. He was bad. He was bad. He was terrible. He was terrible as a Jew. He murdered Christians. But was he worse than David? You know, maybe, maybe in volume, maybe in volume, you know, he probably killed more. But, uh, you know, the thing with David was he killed, you know, David didn't, wasn't killing an enemy. He was killing an ally and, and doing it sneaking, you know. And uh, that's awful. And then he committed adultery. But he saved his conscience by training it. And it's his conscience that saved him. Because he could recognize where he did wrong. 
And he didn't want that to happen to him. He was able to overcome those sins, and the Christian is able to do the same thing. Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing or handling properly the word of truth. God requires a trained conscience to help one guide himself or herself through this life. But remember, a conscience is of no use unless it has been trained by God. It must be trained by God. When one trains his conscience, he can prevent it from being seared. But if it becomes hard, it can be stirred again. It can be awakened. But that takes some work. God's message tells us how to be saved. It tells us how to be saved from a hardened conscience. It tells us how to be saved if we've never obeyed the gospel, faith, repentance, confession, immersion in water, faithful living. And sometimes even after that's when our conscience becomes seared. That, that's what the, the, the ten brothers of Joseph, that's the position they were in. They were born saved because they were Jews. They became uh, unfaithful by doing what they did. And that is why Paul told Timothy, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. That tells us how to be saved, tells us when we're wrong, tells us how to fix it, and tells us how to remain in the position where we need to be. If you've never obeyed the gospel, do that. If you have, you become unfaithful. Come back to him through repentance and confession, prayer. Uh, whatever position you find yourself in, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.